Bring It On is a public affairs program exploring the people, issues, and events affecting the African-American communities in South Central Indiana and beyond. Bring It On is a forum for the people, by the people, produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana, and financially supported by listeners like you. Good evening, I'm Clarence Boone and welcome to Bring It On, a multiple award-winning radio broadcast in our 17th year as Indiana's only weekly community radio show committed to exploring the people, issues, and events impacting the African-American community. Good evening, I'm Liz Mitchell. Back in February, leaders from Monroe County's Black community discussed the possibilities of reparations for historic racial injustices during the annual State of the Black Community Address. And if you listened to last week's broadcast, you, you heard us speaking with Illinois Alderwoman Robin Rue Simmons, who is from Evanston, Illinois, and she was successful in helping that city enact reparations for their residents. The Bloomington Black Strategic Alliance and Monroe County Black Democratic Caucus held the fifth annual event over the Zoom technology and members of the caucus's reparations committee spent the fall of 2021 researching the county's history of racial injustices and presented some of their findings during the event. IU professor Valerie Grimm, director of undergraduate studies for the Indiana University Department of African American and African Diaspora Studies shared that while the research was in its preliminary stages, the February discussion was intended to initiate a dialogue concerning whether there are experiences and encounters in Bloomington and Monroe County that meet a reparation standard. And according to committee member Ashley Pirani, just 1% of Bloomington's black population owns a home. She said areas of Bloomington that had racially restrictive covenants have average home values well over the city average. While neighborhoods with historically higher populations of black residents have houses that usually sell below city average. As for what reparations would look like, the committee hadn't gotten that far yet. To offer some insights into that February discussion and presentation of findings, we have invited one of the members of the reparations committee. Her name is Ashley Pirani, and she is not only a member of the Monroe County Black Democratic Caucus, but again, she is a member of that subcommittee on reparations. Ashley, we're so glad to have you. Welcome to Bring It On. Welcome, thank Ashley. Thank you so much. Thank you. And thank you for uh, your hard, heavy lifting back in 2021. Um, I, I read an article that we gathered some of our introduction information from, and there on that front page of that article was a, a picture of the old black market that students at Indiana University had started back in the 60s, but which was bombed by the Ku Klux Klan in 1968. It's also the site where the current People's Park resides. And uh, not so much to get into a history of that because that can be the springboard for so many other discussions, but I did want to draw attention to that because when you talk about things such as reparations, to me, uh, Ashley, that conjures up mm -hmm. such things as restoration. 
or um, as President Johnson kind of you know, uh, alluded to, making the playing plain field level. And as I mentioned in, in the intro, we did air um, last week a conversation that we had with Illinois Alderwoman, uh, Robin Rue Simmons, who was helpful and, and successful in getting Evanston, Illinois, to pass some reparations legislation. Can you first uh, introduce yourself to our listeners uh, and that you're no stranger to uh, county, I mean, well, to, to public, uh, to the public, and just explain to us some of the things you've done in the county, and we'll go ahead and start this conversation. Yeah, so my name is Ashley Perani, and um, I've been in Bloomington since uh, 2007. Um, I, I came here to marry a Purdue grad, and I hope people don't hold that against me too much. Wait a minute, but... wait, we, just, we just lost some <laughs> listeners. <Wait a> <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> and we have uh, two kids who are fabulous and um, both in elementary school right now. Uh, I'm also currently a board member for Beacon Inc. and the development uh, committee chair for that organization as well. And uh, as you mentioned, a member of the Monroe County Black Democratic Caucus. And uh, my day job is insurance. I work for Shine Insurance, which is a local and independent agency here in town. And um, you didn't waste any time in getting involved. Some people take a few decades before they dip their toes in the water, but you came and got busy right away. Uh, I will stay because it is public knowledge that you also ran for County Council District number three. Um, so you found, found the time to kind of get involved in some of the local politics here. But um, I have a few questions starting off and I know Liz has some questions as well. When we, conjure, when we talk about reparations for many, it conjures up in their mind something that is uh, not a correct definition of what reparations sort of means, but they think it's taking from me and giving to someone else and this that, and the other, and that's not necessarily so. Can you sort of just define for us um, with your experiences on that subcommittee, how did you all view reparations? Yeah, so I, I think it's a great question. And there were a few ways that reparations were looked at. I think one was looking at, is it purely a monetary value? Is that uh, where, the line stops? Is it making sure that there are more historical markers in town for areas that uh, were either maybe homes of prominent black families in the area, um, places of events, things like that, that don't normally get the same level of attention as maybe other things that uh, white individuals have done in the city and the county. Um, and then the, th the third was kind of like a conglomeration of all the things. So kind of looking at what that means. And I think um, for me, that's kind of where I land because it depends on what you wanna see happen and where, uh, what that means. So for some, does that maybe mean it's, you know, a thousand dollar check and we're good to go? Um, I think that that is probably not the case. Um, it would be substantially more. But when we look through the historical pieces of um, some of the things in Monroe County, like racial restrictions is an example, um, you know, African-Americans in the county didn't have access to the same types of housing that white individuals did. And they were actively kept from those. 
So it, it created just a disparity from the start. So what is, what is that going to look like then for folks moving forward? And, you know, uh, you uncover some language uh, that, that was then, I would say, what, homeowners associations or uh, those, 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 those entities that help govern certain neighborhoods or subdivisions, and you found language, old language, and uh, you refer to it as restrictive covenants. And, mm -hmm. um, describe for us some of the things you uncovered and I think that would sort of help our listeners understand that uh, there, some neighborhoods are perhaps enjoying uh, uh, what inflated prices or, or they're enjoying high uh, property value rates while others are not and there may be a reason for some of that some of that not all of that but can you describe for us uh, what you found? Sure. So some of that was already out there before. So I don't know that I, I necessarily uncovered anything new that wasn't already out there. Mm -hmm. um, but what these restrictions would do um, is, is to plainly state that there were certain groups of people which were not allowed to reside or buy or rent unless they were a domestic service person in certain neighborhoods. And a lot of what I what I noticed through um, taking a look at what the estimated land value is of some of these areas is that they all seem to encircle, uh, the university is right in the middle of all of these different neighborhoods. So it's almost like, it was like a wall put up around the university is what I, I felt like I saw um, in that. So, and we know that um, some of these restrictions were written into deeds after it was deemed unconstitutional. So uh, after we did our presentation, I actually had an individual reach out who found it in their deed and their home wasn't built until 1950. So that was after um, it was unconstitutional. So it was still happening well after it uh, you know, wasn't supposed to be. Liz? Okay, yeah. I wanted to make sure that our listening audience understands a few facts uh, when we, during our discussion here on reparations, that the wealth extracted from the community, and this is from Black taxes also, uh, didn't help the Black community at all. At one time, they built a brand new school for white students here with the taxes from black residents. They left the school, which they ended up calling the colored school for black school children. That was a dilapidated building with no electricity and no plumbing. The white school that they built had all the modern conveniences, but yet our tax dollars went to pay for a new school. It took three years to build Banneker and black students had nowhere to go. Every year they went to a different location until Banneker was completed. So we're talking about the wealth extraction from the black communities through environmental racism. It happened during slavery, food apartheid, housing, employment, education, as well as healthcare. Today, a white people in America are 10 times, uh, will make 10 times the amount of wealth than a black person. 
white college students have over seven times more wealth than a black college student and white high school dropouts will be uh, have the opportunities to make more money and obtain more wealth than a black college graduate. Those are the facts. You can't argue with facts. Uh, when Ashley talked about uh, the covenants, uh, Maxwell Terrace was one of them. And they just explicitly said, we don't want blacks living here. Now, if you're a domestic servant, you can come into the area. You might be able to stay in a room overnight in your uh, employer's home, but basically you are not allowed. And like she said, when she took a look at it, all of these neighborhoods kind of surrounded IU. So it, it did seem, and it does appear like there was a protective wall with IU. Uh, you know, IU didn't want black students to stay on campus. Uh, we had one black man who I wanted to have a street named after, I think we should still do that, is Dr. Ezra Alexander, who was allowed to attend Indiana University. He was born and raised in Bloomington. He had to sit out in the hallway to obtain his degree. What kind of reparations should he or his family get? Uh, because that meant in the long run, he didn't obtain the wealth uh, that he should have when he obtained his degree. So you have to ask yourself the question, what would those reparations look like? And individually, we do have our own idea. For me, and Ashley, you mentioned this, historical markers. That's something I'm personally working on. I think that's important to acknowledge different locations and different sites in Bloomington pertaining to the African-American community that have contributed greatly to Monroe County. So I just wanted to make sure that our listening audience understood that. Um, one question I have you answered about the evidence uh, and you also answered about what the reparations would look like. Have you interviewed any of the older African-Americans in this town Ashley, to get a sense of what they think reparations should be, because a lot of them are descendants of the people that you're talking about who were, de were denied uh, basic things, basic freedoms. Yeah, I would love to do that. I have not, but I would love to do that. It's one of, it's, I love oral history. I think that that is just, that's a wealth of knowledge and Elizabeth, I know that you do a lot of that work, um, a lot of that work, and I'm, I love it. I think that that's, it's a really great thing for the community, um, because if it's not, if it's not there, um, we're, we're never going to have it. And as people age, you know, we're starting to lose those pieces. So I would love to do that. I have not done that. And I, and it's just like everything else, right? The answers will be different for every person on what that looks like because uh, the African-American community is not monolithic. What might work for one person won't work for another one. Um, but yeah, I, I think that would be uh, a good next step in um, figuring out what that next step looks like. Because as Clarence said, we didn't give the next step. This was just the starting point. Mm -hmm. 
if, if, if I may, um, and, and for our listeners, if you've just tuned in, we are having a conversation with Ashley Parani, who is a member of the Monroe County Black Democratic Caucus and a member of their subcommittee on reparations. There was a report uh, shared with the public. Uh, it was back in February, and this was a part of the uh, fifth annual, the fifth annual um, State of the Black Community Address. And one of the things that I just want to share is that we know that inequality and inequity have existed for quite some time or, and I have been rampant throughout our country. But when you talk about trends and you talk about sometimes things go in full circle, you can't help but just notice that uh, the, the current posture legislatively, politically, is, is one where a lot of the progress that was made is, is being uh, taken down or distorted or compromised or just out and out done away with. And uh, not just voting rights, but we're talking about a, a lot of things that will serve as a domino effect to kind of take us back to a time uh, when, no, America was not great then. Uh, and no, America was not even fair then. And, you know, I'm, here I am raising a family and these are things that I have to uh, kind of answer to them about, you know, when they ask questions. So tell us as you, as you did the research, uh, what did the research, what did that uh, look like? And what type of things did you uncover that would make people just sit back and jaws drop? Oh boy, that's a big one. <laughs> um, so when doing this research, um, one of the books that was the main focal point for me was Color of Law by Richard Rothstein. Um, I don't know that I've ever earmarked a book so much in my life as I did in that. It's just chock full of evidence when we're talking about redlining and restrictions in housing, insurance, mortgage yeah. lending, all of that stuff. I mean, it's just, there's so much in there that for myself, every time I was turning a page, my jaw was dropping because it was running rampant everywhere. It, it, you know, Monroe County is not unique. We were doing the same exact things that he was talking about, whether it was happening in Alabama, California, you know, Maryland, it didn't matter. It was, ha it, it was happening everywhere. Um, and it was just as explicit <laughs> there as it was here. Um, and so that was, that was kind of an aha moment for myself. And I think that might have resonated with some other people not understanding the historical context when we're talking about reparations. And I think another piece um, Dr. Grimm actually shared was um, about other cultures and races who have obtained some form of reparations for wrongdoing done to them. Um, Japanese Americans uh, got that after internment camps. Um, Germany did this with um, individuals who are um, Jewish who were persecuted during the Holocaust, you know, and we have given some reparations to Native Americans in this country for the, the wrongs that we have done to them as well. But African Americans are the only group that it seems like have had 
been tremendously wronged and have gotten nothing. You know, after the Civil War, you had a brief moment where people got things and then they were taken away again and never given back. And, you know, not to digress too much, but then you look at farming, um, you know, <laughs> that that's land that people were taken away and that was their livelihoods. And so they weren't able to um, do anything but sharecropping at that point. So, you know, that's generational as well. No, well, I, I, oh, if, go ahead. if I can, just a, I had a quick follow-up uh, as I listened to you describe that on this show, we have talked about such things as uh, Japanese internment camps. We've talked about how other races, and uh, First Nation people have suffered. We even just last year, and Liz, you know that we received an award for a show we did on Blacks and the Holocaust. Yes. And when you talk about reparations um, that the Germans have extended to, to Jews, um, I haven't read where such, such support was extended to African-Americans. But going back to a point I was making about how it seems that things are sort of going in a full circle or the pendulum is sort of swinging back in the wrong direction. There's an attack now on critical race theory, which if you ask 10 people, you'll probably get seven different definitions. But at its core, it's legislatively whitewashing history. And, and that is the most remarkable thing. And some have pointed out that this is exactly what was going on in Nazi Germany before literally all hell broke loose. So any comments on that as you did the research when you had, when you and your committee came together to share your findings, uh, how did those discussions go just with the committee members? What were some of their thoughts and their emotions and the like? Yeah, well, um, I think a, a point, obviously learning a little bit more about the housing was new to many community members because we didn't know a lot about that. I know when I started, I didn't have, I had a very superficial uh, knowledge of what that meant um, and was really nervous to take that on because it was, you know, I was like, am I going to find anything? And I was like, oh boy, yeah, we found stuff. And then also thinking about um, the school system. I think that was another kind of uh, rude awakening moment was learning that things that are occurring within the school system superficially look really good, but when you get underneath there and look at the roots of it, it's not so great. And that's something else that needs, you know, serious addressing because we, we have, we have segregated schools here. And for, I think for several people on our committee, that just wasn't as common knowledge that, oh, okay, this is really a thing um, that we're dealing with here because we have great schools. And so, you know, things are great, but I think those were the two pieces that really kind of resonated. And, these, and this was research of, of their policies from these schools. So it wasn't someone uh, offering some conjecture, but this was actual research on some of the school's policies of, admit, of admissions and uh, how their curriculums were structured or who they were, allow, were allowing it. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, there, there's all sorts of little nuances that go with it. So, you know, it's like, the weekly reader a few years ago that, you know, had students 
pretend to be enslaved people um, and talked about picking cotton and things and like that not resonating quite right. When you look at how the school boundaries are set up and it's very strategically cut in some areas, um, lots of just, you know, it's uh, lots of little things, right? That you start piecing together to see. Um, and the um, O'Neill School did a capstone project on this uh, a couple of years ago, I believe, and and uh, gave their findings to say yes, we we have we definitely have this uh, issue of segregation in our schools. My question to you, Ashley, is: yeah, I when I'm talking to uh, people in the white race, the, the dominant culture here in Bloomington they find it hard to believe when I mention some of the things that you've mentioned. And I all, they always refer to, well, we're not like Martinsville. Now, what would your answer be to that? I know what my answer has been over the years, but what's your answer to that? That Bloomington has this perception that they're better than Martinsville. Yeah, um, I think it, it's often equated to uh, the blue dot and the Red Sea, you know, those kinds of things. Uh, because we're democratic, it means that we're, we're doing all right compared to everyone else. But I think when I look at it and I look at Martinsville, one, I don't really know individuals in Martinsville to know like if, if that's accurate, like I know the history of sundown towns and, and those kinds of things, uh, you know, all of that, but it's a pretty generalized statement to make when we're not looking in the mirror ourselves to see what harmful practices we're currently doing as white people in Monroe County. Um, you know, how are we not advocating? And I think there are some big ways we're not advocating, right? Like schools, that's a big one. You know, white families like the schools that they're in you know, realtors are not supposed to practice this anymore, um, but we know that it does still occur. We're telling people which schools are the better schools to go to and which ones to stay away from. And um, we know which schools they're telling people to stay away from, um, those kinds of things. So I think we've got a lot of work to do as white people on um, getting a grasp of, of the ways that we're still perpetuating systemic racism in our county. That would be my answer. And I, Elizabeth, I get some weird looks a lot of the time too. So. Yeah. <laughs> well, it, it takes... Go ahead, Liz. Um, um, and I also get this question. You, they said, uh, Liz, you talk about past racism, uh, racist practices. What about current racial practices, disparities? And I just wonder, what's the problem? Why don't the dominant race get it? And why do you think that is? Why don't the dominant race just sit down, breathe a little bit, and, and just get it? Just pay attention. Because that's scary. It's scary for people to feel like they're not the good white person because of what they've, they've done. Because every white person every single day has done something that has caused harm. And once you accept that, it's easier to start moving forward because you can't truly progress as a human 
until you recognize that, yes, while I did not own enslaved people, my family at some point in time did. And so I have gained a lot off the backs of other people. And that's hard to sit with, right? Because people don't like to think of themselves as the bad white person. And so I think it comes down to being terrified of not being seen that way. Because even when you're trying to have a conversation with someone, uh, another white person, when it comes to race, like me to another white person, it's, there's a lot of deflection that will happen instantaneously. And I recognize that because there was a point when I did that same deflection and I'm sure that I'll do it again. <laughs> In yeah. fact, I know I will do it again so because that, it's, yeah. Be same as um, whites denying that they take advantage of white, um, uh, white privilege. And, and is it hard to that yeah there's certain privileges I just get that are just ingrained in society for them to even recognize that because I recognize it and live with it every day and it's 2022 and and I have white friends that I dearly love I mean I'm not just saying it for the listening audience I have you know so I think they don't pay attention to it because you don't have to it's just something that's every day. So have you encountered that in your conversations about yeah. what and then is there denial? <laughs> yeah, there, there is. And you know, it's, um, voting. That's one of the things, right? That is a privilege that was uh, for a long time, a white privilege. So we have a lot of people who get apathetic about voting, um, and don't understand why it's important be, you know, and you can, say it until you're dizzy in the face that this is really important and here's why. So that's one of those privileges that I think white folks can often dismiss because they've always had it and haven't had to look at it through a different lens of not have had, not having it. Um, but yeah, I, yeah, there's, it's, and there are, and, you know, I say all this and, and want to recognize that there are still certain privileges that I myself am probably not aware that I have that other people don't have that hopefully one day I will. I've been, I've been on that. I've been in the system for, you know, 42 years. So I've got at least 42 years of unlearning to do. Yeah. You know, the thing that again, amazes me, well, probably does not amaze me, but it's again, this cycle uh, that we see um, and over the past five years, and not that I want to evoke a name here, but my goodness, a lot of things just came to the forefront uh, when a particular administration came to office and came to power. And you know, it, the platform was built on, number one, they're bad people, they bring this to our country, we need to build a wall. Nothing, uh, Nothing healing about the message, no reconciliation in the message, nothing about let's help people who, you know, why are they coming to America? Is there something we're offering that they don't have? Well, can we help them create what we have there? I mean, but no, let's just block them out and then let's just warehouse them. Let's put them in cages. Let's separate children from families. And, um, you know, I, I'm at an age where, 
I, I, I've lived through a lot of different presidencies. And you know, I had a long talk with my parents when it was kind of evident that things were going to go a particular way. And not that they were almost in tears, but you could see their hearts sinking. You know, here we were on a high for eight years when Barack Obama was president. And of course, a lot of people say, well, see, there you go. There is now no more racism because Barack Obama is president. Well, okay, all right, come on, let's wake up. And, and then it, the reverse just happened. And now Biden, you know, and, and let's face it, you know, if he was embraced for a whole lot of reasons and that voting block that put him over was black women, okay? So, and he has held true to a lot of promises that he made. And he's trying to advance some things, but look what he's contending with. A pandemic, a war, uh, threats of a nuclear war. I mean, the inflation, on and on. And we can just go on and on. Not giving him a pass on any of those things, but in spite of all that, still trying to bring harmony in a nation that was deeply fractured. And even now, uh, the January 6th committee is showing us just how deeply fractured and how deeply contaminated things were and what could have potentially happened. So in, in spite of all that, we can go on about that. And again, that, that's a series of shows, not just another show. That's a series of shows. I do want to get from you, what do you think reparations look like when the committee was sort of... Uh, uh, vetting the information, the research, and trying to put together a presentation report to report out on. And they said they had not yet determined what reparations would look like. What were some of the examples amongst committee members that they felt reparations could look like? Well, I think I mentioned them before. One is what Elizabeth said she's you know, working on, which is her passion project, was which is getting more things uh, marked in town. Um, I think the the big hurdle is figuring out how to fund it, how to fund reparations, because like is and Evanston is an example. They legalize cannabis, so they're using the tax money from that to do some of their work, uh, which we we do not currently have in our state. Um, but in terms of I think what I see it looking like, there definitely needs to be some sort of rec reconciliation when it comes to housing. Um, you know, there's a huge, huge gap, wealth gap. You know, we know that land ownership and home ownership create a lot of wealth because you can build equity in those things. So I would like to see something um, formulated that tackles that um, process. I don't know if that looks like, um, home loans, you know, with low interest rates, um, with so much, um, you know, with the city, uh, with funding, right, as a down payment for those homes, there's a lot of different things you can do there. But I think that's one of the, the things that I see when it comes to housing with school, school district uh, situation, I would like to see redistricting happen. And I know I'm probably getting a lot of you know, right now from some people who are listening, because that's a really controversial topic itself, but just making those lines more equitable. Um, it doesn't mean that, you know, schools are going to be disintegrated because of that. Um, it just means things are more equitable. And when things are more equitable, um, everybody wins. 
That's interesting that you said that because um, I've asked several people that same question, uh, Ashley, and I there was one white person who asked, how, how do Blacks put up with that, with the disparities all these years and being mistreated? And one answer was, you dealt with a lot of stuff because fighting back meant you die. In a lot of cases, death. Um, then how do you deal with the numbness? You become almost numb to a daily regiment of, and, and the pressure of oppression that you've experienced for many, many years. And, and how do you fix the feeling of not belonging? I always say that the history books or the photo album, the family photo album, that's basically what a history book is. And how do we feel as African-Americans that we're left out of the family photo album? You feel pretty bad. And so you've got decades and centuries of that feeling. Mm -hmm. uh, and then like you said, you know, well, that's in all aspects. And people I, I think have a difficult time realizing that it hits all aspects of life. Now you talked about housing. Most people think, well, you know, everything's open up and the realtors, there are laws passed that prevent that. How, how is these laws gonna prevent what is actually happening that we know that when a black home is appraised, it's appraised for three times less value of a white home. What, how are we gonna stop that, Ashley? <laughs> it's a tall order. Well, and you know, what's interesting is that there is some research to indicate since having these different laws on the books for housing, the discrimination has actually gotten worse than it used to be. So oh. they found the disparity gaps have widened instead of shrunk, which makes total sense because when, when we're not looking at the institutions themselves and fixing the institutions at the root, then everything else is superficial to it. And so I know that sounds like really Debbie Downer <laughs> with it, but you really have to look at the root system and say, do we need to pull this whole thing up and start again? And you know, correct those things. But I think when it when we're looking at that, yeah, I mean, it's really depressing. I don't know how to fix it. I wish, <laughs> I wish I had the answer on yeah. what to do with that because it's it's not right. It's not right. You know, you Just talk go about the, go ahead. Go ahead. You, you talk about the root cause. Uh, yeah. And and you talk about you know behaviors often. Well, behaviors do manifest within a person's heart. It's plain and simple, you know. Um, but I think you said something earlier that, that sort of governs the behavior. And you said fear. You know, fear can make us act totally out of character. It can make us, uh, you know, you look at a mob mentality. And I think of what mobs have done in the black community over the centuries and how some of the, the mindset of a mob can spread like a prairie fire. Fear is a horrible thing. Not understanding another human being is, a, is just a horrible, it's a horrible thing. 
And so, okay, how do we fix it in the remaining, oh, what, 15 minutes we have here? Sure, we have answers. <laughs> Uh, but one is to, you know, let's, let's be transparent. And, and the one thing that I, we have resisted as a nation, um, that every time we've come close to doing this, it's been derailed. And that is having a national conversation on race. And we have the people in this country that can lead it. Uh, you know, it could be intellectual, it can be down to earth. We have people of all ilks that can lead this conversation. We've had, we've had, uh, workshops in this uh, city alone on how to survive a police pullover. And that's another third rail issue. Um, but people have successfully led those conversations. And I would like to think that we've seen some changes as a result of that. Is it easy? No. It calls for work. And people sometimes resist the notion of doing the heavy lifting. Critical race theory is just a smokescreen uh, to cover fear. How can you whitewash this? I mean, how, seriously, how can you whitewash history? It never happened or it happened, but people are misinterpreting what happened. So, I mean, it's the subtleties of it all. So, so as your committee deliberated, they, they, yeah, there's a reason why they came back to say, look, this was just a start. We don't have answers yet because this takes time and it takes hard work. And, and the thing that I resent and push back against is the idea of a handout. Uh, I think deep down, everybody wants what's due to them, but no one wants necessarily a handout because that stifles a person, I believe. Um, but yet when you've experienced inequity all this time, as President Johnson said, you gotta make the, the playing field level. So again, it takes work. So I don't know, that's not a question, and uh, but it's maybe, What's, 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 what's in my heart right now? Can you respond to, to what, where my mind is right now? Because tell me what I'm thinking right now. <laughs> well, I'm not going to tell you what you're thinking. <laughs> but my, my uh, wife does. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I do with my husband too. Okay. Uh, but I think when I think of things, you know, I don't look at reparations as a handout because it was never given in the first place. So it's, it's what's due. And then when I, you know, when I think about, you know, just people in general, right? Like there's a lot of stigma and assumptions about lots of groups of people out there and it all is based in fear and very few times actually based in personal experience. Um, you know, as I said, I, I'm on the board for Beacon, which helps individuals who are impoverished, impoverished um, extremely impoverished, or um, facing houselessness in our community. And there's a lot of stigma that's put upon them as well. Um, so when I, you know, just when I think about that, right, like, that's the same kinds of things that are happening. People don't go to that side of town. It's not safe. Well, how do you know? Well, that's what I've heard. So you don't actually know that it's not safe there. Um, you know, I, I grew up next to South Bend. So I can tell you, I was indoctrinated with that over and over and over again. Don't go over there. It's not safe. Don't go over there. Uh, <laughs> and I was like, you know what? Nothing ever happened to me. It's, it's a miracle. Nothing ever happened. Uh, you know, I was there all the time. But so when I think about that, I think, yeah, I just, I think that, you know, it's, it's not a handout. It's, 
it's give, giving what's owed either to an individual or the family of their ancestors. Um, you said something else as well, and it shot right out of my brain that I was going to respond to. Well, well while you're uh, thinking of, of that, I think of the notion of generational wealth that has benefited large segments of the majority population because a farm, farmland's been in the family all these years, or this house has been in the family all these years, or accumulated wealth over generations has given a lot of people great starts in society. Um, and I do see African-American families now beginning to slowly follow that pattern. Uh, and, and at small percentage, we talked about the 1% that own homes, but I think across the United States, that number is increasing, but we need to do more to have it increase more and show people how to accumulate wealth that can be passed down. Um, but it's, again, it's gonna take time, it's gonna take a commitment, and it's gonna take understanding leaders who, to me, don't want to use everything as a third rail uh, wedge gap, a political plank, to try to, to come against the other party. And that's what we see happening time and time again, from healthcare to even how people with the pandemic were treated, uh, to you name it. I mean, we see it happening right now. Well, to piggyback on what you said, I'd like to give our listening audience a couple of facts. Uh, you talked about the wealth. In 1860, over 3 billion was the value assigned to the physical bodies of enslaved Black Americans to, and used as free labor and production. This was more money than was invested in factories and railroads combined. And in 1861, the value of cotton produced by enslaved Black Americans was over $250 million. When the last slave ship, the Cotillion, uh, sailed up into the Alabama River, those slaves produced money for a particular family. Just within the past year, 60 Minutes, did a special show about those last incoming Africans and the white family who built wealth off of the backs of those enslaved Africans. And to this day, that white family won't say a word and they are living large. And that black community is almost destitute. So can the American government make them pay up, make them build houses, build a better school? These are the questions I have. Because why in 2022, when we all know what happened with that last slave ship, and how the descendants are in dire straits, why hasn't something at least been done for them? Uh, for me, reparations would start with an apology from the American government. And I don't know why that hasn't happened yet, but that's a beginning point. Yeah, sure, Clarence, we can have that discussion. We can talk to we're blue in the face, but I wanna hear an I am sorry. And we have yet to got to get that apology. And that to me, uh, America should be ashamed. Well, it took forever to pass the anti-lynching legislation, which was uh, employed 
to bring stark fear in black communities. If, if say me as a black male step out of my place, uh, you know, it, I can get I can get a visitation in the middle of the night, or maybe not even in the middle of the night. Um, but it took forever to pass anti-lynching legislation. And so now here we are in 2022, um, and it wasn't too long ago, I believe, President Obama apologized to the Japanese people for things that had happened. I, I vaguely remember that, and if you can confirm that, I appreciate it. But I, re I recall our former president apologizing on behalf of our country on the things that happened to Japanese people, either through the internment camps or the dropping of uh, two two nuclear or two um, atomic bombs on Nagasaki and Hiroshima. So um, there's something about reconciliation and restoration. It's a long process. I, I look at, uh, was it South Africa or Mandela uh, led, led uh, um, reconciliation discussions. And I think between the Hutus and the Tutsis after their um, call it a civil war, they had a discussion where where sins were forgiven. And how powerful is that? So yeah, we, we have heavy lifting to do. And the polarized nation that we that we stay, that, that we're currently living in, that might go a long way to begin to heal the breach that we as Americans are feeling right now. Well, it'll be interesting to see what this Liz, oh. Elizabeth, you mentioned um, about all of those um, enslaved people in the slave ships. One of the other things to, to think about when talking about those two is they could collect taxes and insurance as well. They insured their property. Yes. And so there's that whole, <laughs> that whole yeah. myriad that goes along with it yeah. that um, I don't think we, we talk about a lot. Like uh, that's pretty newer knowledge for me. Yeah. to know that 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 we you know people had insurance policies out on that i had no idea yeah yeah you know i think a lot of it does go back to what we're teaching our children even in the early grade levels um not sugarcoating not, not whitewashing but by sharing with them the dark chapter of america and instilling it within them at the same time the hope that they will make sure we never return to that instead of prosecuting teachers, having the citizens determine what curriculum will be taught, um, suing teachers, uh, firing teachers, you name it. And so, you know, I look at what we're doing to try to make life better in America, and we, we don't have it right. We're, we're going about it the wrong way. Well, if you just tuned in, we've been having a rather stark uh, conversation. It's an uncomfortable conversation for some to listen to, but a conversation nonetheless that is needed to be had. Uh, we are speaking uh, with Ashley uh, Perani, who is a member of the, um, the Monroe County Black Democratic Caucus and a member of their subcommittee on reparations. And for the last about hour or so, she's been sharing, sharing with us some of the insights that their research has uh, unearthed about this whole subject of what's going on in Monroe County and in Bloomington. And um, you know, we will continue to have these such conversations. Last week, as I mentioned earlier, we had a conversation 
with an Illinois alderwoman uh, by the name of Robin Rue Simmons, who was successful in Evanston, Illinois, and getting that community to pass legislation um, which would address reparations. So for those that will care to listen to last week, do so, and then do some research on your own and see that their intent was not to uh, have the government just open their purse, but their vehicle to fund such reparations was through the um, marijuana uh, proceeds from some of the sale of marijuana, which now is legal in that area. Uh, I know that gambling is legal in Indiana and forever that everyone was talking about, well, it could fund education, it could fund road construction. Well, when the money was being doled out, it's interesting where it was going. So I'll just leave it there. Um, as we begin to sort of land this conversation, this plane here, uh, any final remarks, uh, Liz, maybe a question that you didn't get a chance to ask that you can ask? Well, I just wanted Ashley to have the opportunity to say any last minute remarks that she thinks our listening audience should know. Yeah, I was gonna okay. get to her, but I didn't know if you had a, a burning question. <laughs> no. I, I see, I see uh, your better half there. Does your better half have a question that he'd like to ask? <laughs> <laughs> it's the Zoom I technology. Didn't know that burning question, but I figured that uh, she might have had Ashley might have had some thoughts or something that we sure. didn't bring up that she would like that listening audience to know about. Absolutely. I do have one request. I would like everyone who lives in a home that's older to take a look at your deeds and see what your deed says. If you live in a homeowners association, that's older. So we're talking, you know, 1900s through maybe the 50s or 60s. Take a look and see what um, might be in your HOA. It might be a restriction in your HOA as well. So take a look at those things. And if you find them, reach out to the recorder's office and let them know that you have these in there so they can properly be cataloged because that's part of the history of our county and it's important. Thank you, thank you, Ashley. I figured you had something <laughs> and I think that's really important. So thank you for putting it out there. So listening audience, please take a look at your deeds and, uh, and, and let Ashley know. And Ashley, I'm prepared to share with you some of my oral histories with the committee. I'm gonna put together something for the committee because my <laughs> husband, had experiences too in 81. Sure. And, and speaking of the committee, um, now in February, they came back to report out that they had not yet reached any uh, definitive resolutions for reparations or, or, or what it might look like a design of reparations. Are they any closer at this point? Is there a plan to release uh, some recommendations? And who would they, who would they share those recommendations with? Uh, not at this moment, there isn't anything that I could report as an update. Um, I know we are still making a decision on how we're going to forge ahead if this group will look the same as it is. Um, sometimes uh, groups that have presented for the State of the Black Community Address have turned in to their own groups. And um, so we're just kind of um, figuring out if that's how we're going to move forward or not. 
Well, on that note, uh, we want to thank Ashley Parani, member of the Monroe County Black Democratic Caucus and a member of their subcommittee on reparations for joining us to offer insights and her perspective on the topic of reparations uh, that were discussed during the February State of the Black Community Address. Bring It On has an open submission policy. So if you have an idea for this program, let's hear it. Send an email to our volunteer staff. The address is bringiton at wfhb.org. We want to make sure we share everything and anything affecting the African-American community with our listening audience in Bloomington and beyond. The email address, once again, is bringiton at wfhb.org. Also, if you have an event or happening the African-American community should know about, please send the information directly to, to the Bring It On staff. Or if you want additional information about a calendar item that you've heard tonight or, or more information about our guests this evening, contact us at Bring It On at WFHB.org. Bring It On's executive producer is Clarence Boone. Assistant producer is William Hosea, soon to be Liz Mitchell show consultant and WFHB News Department Director is Cade Young. Program engineer is Sean Tarlaw-Fontant. Original theme music is created by Jamal Ephraim with additional background tracks by David Baker. For WFHB, I'm Liz Mitchell. And I'm Clarence Boone. If if you're not done so already, be sure to exercise your right to vote during tomorrow's primary elections. Also, be sure to tune in next week on Monday at 6 p.m. for another edition of Bring It On right here on your community radio station, WFHB. You've been listening to Bring It On, a volunteer-powered production of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana. Bring It On is your forum for open dialogue on the people, issues, and events affecting the African-American community in South Central Indiana and beyond. Send your comments, suggestions, and story ideas directly to the Bring It On staff. The email address is bringit at wfhb.org. That's bringit at wfhb.org.